Hello, I'm Andrew Neil, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a veteran of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, someone who believes it's America's duty to protect and promote liberal democracy around the world. Robert Kagan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a columnist for The Washington Post. He's also the author of The Jungle Grows Back, America and Our Imperiled World. We discuss Russia's war in Ukraine, whether the United States still has the appetite for the liberal interventionism he promotes, and why he thinks America is facing the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War. This is the backstory from Tortoise. Robert Kagan, you wrote in February about the dire consequences for NATO and Europe if Mr. Putin should succeed in conquering Ukraine. What are the consequences if he fails or is held to a stalemate? Let's just talk about his, uh, the first part of that, which is his failure to conquer Ukraine. And I think it will obviously be an enormous setback for him, but it's also a kind of... Uh, it's a statement about the health of the liberal world order, which I have to admit, even I'm surprised at how well the liberal world order, which is to say the United States and its democratic allies, have really snapped into place in response to this act of aggression. I was probably I would probably have been, been a little bit more pessimistic about uh, the kind of unity that we've seen, the kind of reversal of apparent reversal of course that we see in countries like Germany um, and in general the Americans ability to step in and play a role that America had been uh, accustomed to playing for many decades after World War II but which looked in the last couple of decades as if Americans were not interested in continuing so the fact that American public opinion has supported this policy as well is also pleasantly surprising to me and perhaps to others. Why did you think Russia would be so swiftly victorious in Ukraine? I'm sorry, did you believe that they were going to be bogged down like this and essentially lose to the Ukrainians? I wasn't the one that wrote in the Washington Post <laughs> that it would be so swiftly no, victorious. <laughs> Why did you think that? Well, I just assumed, uh, as I think everyone did, and certainly as Vladimir Putin did, that after spending 10 years of pouring significant quantities of money into their into upgrading the Russian military, uh, he set out in the 2000s to build a more mobile, more rapid response, more capable uh, military than he had shown in Georgia in 2008, and even to some extent in Crimea in 2014. That there we, I think most of us assume that he had that capability. One of the great questions that I think people are going to go back and look at is what exactly happened to that military that he'd been building? Why was it so apparently incompetent at every level? What do you believe was Mr. Putin's primary motivation for invading Ukraine? 
Well, I think it was fundamentally strategic. If Russia wants to be a great power again, anything even resembling its power as the Soviet Union, but even as the Russian Empire before the Soviet Union, it can't be that as long as Ukraine is an independent entity. If you, all you have to do is look at the map and see that basically if Russia does not control Ukraine, its forces are hundreds of miles further east uh, and pose much less of a threat in Central Europe than if Russia does occupy Ukraine and effectively Belarus and probably at the end of the day, Moldova too. Um, it's just the location of uh, of Russian forces in, in the event of controlling Ukraine really changes the whole strategic picture in a way that, that everyone would have had to adjust to. I don't think we need to have much more explanation than that. I know people talk about how Putin wanted to get at the United States and wanted to get at the West. I must say, I find those issues secondary to what ought to be a pretty basic strategic understanding that Russia is a great power with Ukraine and fundamentally, it is not a great power without Ukraine. Is it not also possible, though, that he feared a prosperous, a democratic Ukraine, a Europe-facing Ukraine, and that really what he wanted was another Belarus? I think his goal in this particular conflict was to basically get rid of Ukraine altogether as an independent entity and absorb it into Russia, which I think he will do. He is in the process of doing in the case of Belarus. And, and I understand the argument, and I think there is some truth to it, that it was, uh, you know, concern about sort of encroaching democracy that worried him. But I actually don't believe that Ukrainian democracy was such a, what is the evidence that Ukrainian democracy was such a threat to Putin's continued squelching of democracy in Russia, that that would be the reason uh, to force him into action? I think if you look at his behavior and actions He's been very clear about what his goals are and what he has done since then is to probe consistently to see what he can get away with from the West, to see what the West's reaction is. I think he anticipated in this case that the West's reaction would be minimal. And so I hesitate to look for much larger objectives in his case or to believe that he's really fundamentally, at least before this war, was fundamentally unsure about his position in Russia although this conflict may have made him vulnerable. What do you say to those uh, who argue that the West played a part in this? It was too aggressive about getting Ukraine to join the EU or become a member of NATO. We were not sensitive enough to Russian pride. We made Moscow feel threatened. I think it, it, it's more complicated than that in a way. I don't think that, especially if you look at the actions of the United States and Europe in the early years after the Cold War, you know, if you start looking in 1991 and beyond, neither the United States nor Europe was in any rush to enlarge NATO. Uh, in fact, uh, even the Clinton administration held off on enlarging NATO and chose to go with this partnership for peace, which was essentially uh, meaningless in terms of security guarantees. You recall that George H.W. Bush gave a speech, which I think was uncharitably labeled the chicken Kiev speech, uh, in which he made it very clear that he did not seek and did not favor the independence of Ukraine. I, I really think that what happened had less to do with the policies of the West than with the simple reality of what the end of the Cold War meant. 
the end of the Cold War led to a drastic diminution of Russian power uh, before the United States and NATO did anything. Uh, Under both Gorbachev and then in the early Yeltsin years, Russia cut back on its military budget by approximately 80 to 90 percent. They basically gutted the Russian military. They would not have done that if they were afraid of Western attack. They did that because they felt they needed to restructure their economy and that this was an opportune moment to do so. But the bottom line is Russia was extremely weak. The nations that had been essentially captives of Moscow, the Warsaw Pact nations, as well as some of the uh, newly independent states, as they were known, looked to the West, which was richer, stronger, freer. uh, and, And so there was a natural sort of attraction. And really what people are asking now when they say, why were you so aggressive, is that the West somehow give Russia its traditional sphere of interest, even though Russia no longer had the capacity to sustain such a sphere of interest. Spheres of interest are not things that nations grant each other out of sensitivity. Spheres of interest are things that exist because of power relationships. And the power relationships in Europe had simply shifted, and Russia was unfortunately the victim of that power shift, and I think has been trying to sort of claw its way back ever since. But it remains the case that Russia clearly still lacks the real capability to enforce a sphere of interest. So it would have been quite something, I think, for the West to say to, for instance, the Poles, that even though Russia now has no capability to control your actions, we are going to accept that you are basically in Russia's sphere of interest. And that means that you'll have to be subservient to Moscow. And that's just tough. I mean, that is what people are talking about when they say aggressive. The fact was Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and and all the other states desperately wanted to join NATO. We in the West would have had to say, nope, you're in Russia's sphere of interest. You can't join. And I really wonder on what basis of justice or even strategy we would have made such a decision. But even given that, let's say that that is the correct analysis. Was there not more post the fall of the Berlin Wall that we in the West could have done to ease Russia into the community of Western nations? I honestly think we we did. I'm not saying we did it with complete competence because we don't do anything with complete competence. The offer was made to Russia on numerous occasions that Russia could join NATO uh, and become one of the NATO partners. Russia's attitude towards that is we're too big to be just another member of NATO. There's a lot of Russian pride, historical feeling, uh, a lot of humiliation after the fall of the Soviet Union. But I really do think the effort was made. I think what we're dealing with was a decision by, I will say, Russia, but by certainly by some Russians not to choose integration, but to choose the historical path of Russian greatness. It's an understandable path. It's a path that great powers frequently take, but it was a choice that Russia had, and that's the choice they made. By the way, other powerful countries have made different choices in that circumstance. Britain, for instance. Did Britain give anything up over the course of the 20th century to accommodate itself to new realities in the world? Britain, once the strongest power in the world with a sphere of influence that covered the entire planet, no one said, well, what are we giving Britain 
you know, Britain just settled into uh, the new world and I think lived very happily uh, inside of it. So did after the war Germany and Japan, so did France, etc. Somehow Russia is the country that doesn't want to play that game. But I don't know that you can blame that on the West. But it's certainly true that President Putin revived the idea of Russian spheres of influence. Would he have been deterred from his Ukrainian adventure if the West had shown a tougher response to his previous invasions of Georgia, Crimea, Donbass? Yes, I believe so. He was probing throughout this period. He knew that he couldn't take on the West if the West was determined to take him on. So they, he took actions to see what the West would tolerate. And I think what we demonstrated, unfortunately, was that we would tolerate a great deal. And ultimately, we discovered, I think, to our own surprise, that we would not tolerate his ultimate desire to take over all of Ukraine. By the way, this happens, at least in American foreign policy, all the time. We are constantly convincing not only others, but ourselves, that we're not going to defend this part of the world or that part of the world. Korea comes to mind, right, in the, in the, in the, in the early Cold War, only to discover that when they are attacked, we find that we care more than we thought we did. We, 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 we have a way of fooling other, sort of trapping other powers into making bad decisions on that basis. And I do think that that, to some extent, is what happened here as well. Would it over-egg it to say that there are echoes of the 1930s in our response to Mr. Putin? Well, I, I, as the person who was constantly being criticized for always thinking it's 1939, I, I, I plead guilty to thinking there are parallels in our behavior in both cases. And, you know, without getting into, you know, exact parallels, because no exact historical parallels are, are ever, you know, things aren't perfect. But what it does indicate is a, is, a, is a constant theme of American foreign policy. You know, it, it's, it's hard for, even for Americans to understand how different the American position is from that of most countries in the world. Because America is so distant from the main cockpits of conflict in the world, it's very easy for Americans to believe that the, the things that happen so far away can't possibly affect them. And that was true in 1914, and it's true today as well. Whereas other countries sort of, they live in the middle of these crisis uh, regions, so they, they understand the immediate impact. So Americans are slow to realize that something that is happening thousands of miles away ultimately has some implications for them. And so they were slow in the 1930s to realize that, and they were slow in this case to realize that as well at a, you know, at a lesser level of strategic threat. Should the West make it clear that there can be no return to normality with Russia as long as Mr. Putin is in the Kremlin? No, I don't think it's possible to return to normality with Russia while Putin's in the Kremlin in the same way that you wouldn't have felt. I mean, once a person has shown that he's willing to commit aggression again and again and again, you have to assume that that is what that person is. Not to mention the steps that he's now taken inside Russia, which are even more draconian than the already draconian crackdown that he'd undertaken. I find it very hard to imagine ever going back to anything resembling business as usual. But 
you know, I think business as usual with a country that is so clearly a revisionist power as China is, I think business as usual is probably out the window in both cases. In both cases, at the very least, you're going to have a competitive, contested relationship in which, in fact, you are battling over spheres of influence sort of continually. And I think it would be a mistake. And, I, and in fact, it's a pretty common mistake that we in the West succumb to, to think that there is such a thing as normalcy, that there is such a thing as, can we all, which, which is another way of saying, can we all go back to not worrying about all this? The answer is, to some extent, you can never stop worrying about it because the world is in constant flux, you know? Nations rise and fall. That is, that is the whoop and wharf of international relations. There's no, there's no stasis. We, we somehow had convinced ourselves that the Enlightenment had triumphed Peace had broken out, you know, globalization had cured the, the, the evils of mankind. Um, you know, that, that's not what's happened, right? And I think it's time for us to sort of grow up and, and realize, that, yes, we live in a complicated world, to say the least. If Ukraine survives this terrible ordeal that it's currently going through, if it survives as a sovereign state, should membership of the EU be back on the agenda? If it were up to me, then the answer would certainly be yes. I don't see any reason to exclude Ukraine from the West, and less so today than before the invasion, it seems to me, uh, should we consider trying to exclude Ukraine from the West. You know, one of the reasons that people said, well, don't, don't push on EU, don't push on NATO, is because you'll provoke a Russian invasion. Well, no one was pushing on Ukraine for NATO. And certainly the EU question was shelved for the time being, and yet he invaded anyway. Maybe we can get over the notion that it is our fault that he's attacking Ukraine. So given Europe's robust response to the invasion of Ukraine so far, are Americans still from Mars and Europeans still from Venus, as you once memorably wrote? I still think it's the case. And, and by the way, for, for entirely understandable reasons, that the United States is more is still more prone to use force in 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 situations than Europeans are. That has that that derives to some extent from European capabilities. I mean, Europe really doesn't really have much in the way of force projection capabilities. And up until now, I think it's been quite clear that Europeans haven't wanted it. That the discussion has certainly been taking place for decades. Right? How many times have the Europeans said that they're going to build up their military? They haven't. They've made that choice. Now, maybe, maybe that will change to some extent, but I don't see Europe playing that kind of, it becoming its own sort of standalone superpower, even though I would be delighted if it did. So it's partly capability, and, and capability to some extent drives decision-making. Um, but of course, on the other hand, and this is something that I think I wish Americans were more sensitive to when it comes to countries like Germany, Europe has a, a past that is fraught with conflict and nationalism and two, two major bloody conflicts in the 20th century. And for Europe to be inclined toward peace is of great benefit to the world and to the United States. And I think we, to some extent, we should welcome the degree to which Europeans are more peacefully inclined than maybe they had been in, in previous centuries. And I wouldn't be quick to want to push them in a different direction, quite honestly. I think what it means, and this is where it gets you know, complicated, is 
It means that to some extent, Europe is going to continue to depend for its security on the American security umbrella. Americans should be willing, in fact, perfectly willing to provide that security umbrella in the interest of global peace. And there is going to be that disparity between the two. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let me move on to some wider considerations of American foreign policy and its place in the world. Is there not less of an appetite for America at home and abroad to play its dominant role on the world stage because of the failure of the U.S. interventionism that you've espoused? That's not what it seems to be the case, does it? I mean, it's interesting to me how frequently since the Iraq war, for instance, just to take the, the obvious example, Americans have been very uh, slow to get over the Iraq war. And I think uh, I would agree with you that it has certainly made Americans less inclined to use force in situations where I think in retrospect, they ought to have, for instance, Syria, to keep Russia out and to deal with the horrific humanitarian disaster visited upon the Syrian people by Assad. But yes, they, they have, there's no question that Iraq uh, and to some extent Afghanistan have had that effect. The effect on the rest of the world, I think, is much less clear. I don't notice in Japan any less of a desire to uh, hold on to the U.S. security relationship. In fact, they continue to be demandeurs in that relationship, as are other, uh, other nations in East Asia. And what we saw in the case of Europe was that the United States was not only called upon to play a critical role, but that role was welcomed. And in fact, the, the one reaction that I've most noted in Europe in recent years was the horror with which Europeans greeted the Trump administration and the whole idea of America first and Trump's discussion about perhaps getting out of NATO and Trump's general hostility to the idea that the United States should do anything for Europeans. 
uh, to provide Europeans with any security. And what was the European reaction to that? It was horror and, uh, and, and hopes and prayers that we would get back to an administration like we have now, which is willing to play that role. Most people and most countries that are made up of people, they have one question on their mind at any given moment, which is, are you there for us or not when we need you? Uh, that is the question that people ask in East Asia. It's definitely the question that people ask in Eastern Europe. And when they ask that question, they don't talk about Iraq. They talk about the fact that they want the United States there to, to protect them uh, and to help them protect themselves. But the American people have a right to ask a question, too. And they do. Which, and they you know, have. You know, you want us there to help you. But what are you doing to help yourself? Look how Germany has allowed its military to be hollowed out and is only now, in the aftermath of Ukraine, doing anything about it. Well, as I say, I, I've, I've never quite understood why Americans should be eager for Germany to become a big military nation again. But if that's what Americans think they want, I guess I understand the impulse, if not agreeing with it. But mostly, I think you're right. Of course, Americans had gone. And by the way, that's why I was been surprised by the reaction in this case, right? I would have expected, uh, based on what you're saying and based on what American public opinion had looked like at least for the last decade or so, that there would be less interest in a European crisis of this nature than there has been. But look at what's happened in the United States. It's been almost a revolution of American public opinion. The dissenting views, which will increase, by the way, inevitably, but the dissenting views have been few and far between in the United States. So what that indicates to me uh, is that there is more in that reservoir than we may have thought in terms of American willingness, American public's willingness to play a more active global role. And of course, we'd seen reverses like this in the past. You brought up the 1930s. Clearly, that was a major reversal uh, of American public opinion driven eventually by Pearl Harbor, but not initially by Pearl Harbor. I mean, Americans' opinion began to shift after Munich, after Kristallnacht, after the invasion of Poland, etc. So again, you have to go back to this understanding that Americans believe they live in a safe corner of the world where the rest of the world can't touch them. And that is very easy for them to say, why did we get involved in here? And why did we get involved there? Especially when the, when the wars don't turn out the way we want them to. But does that kill off that sentiment for international involvement in the United States? I would say clearly not. Well, I can see why America, you can argue that America still has an appetite to protect existing democracies yeah. and its democracies that are allies. You're Japan because of China, European democracies because of Russia and so on. But it doesn't, I would suggest, you have an appetite now for your kind of liberal interventionism. I mean, it's often bloody efforts to spread democracy this century has, rather than succeeding, we've had a century of growing authoritarianism and autocracy. So-called liberal interventionism has hardly been deemed a success. Well, first of all, it's a complete myth that the United States went into Iraq and, and certainly went into Afghanistan in order to promote democracy. The reasons why the United States went into Iraq, rightly or wrongly, uh, were, were driven by security interests and fears, especially after 9-11. Uh, it was not- there was, a whole floor of, there was a whole floor of the State Department 
were devising plans to rebuild a, an Iraq based on democracy. I saw it myself. It was called Iraq Shack. Yeah, I understand that. But that was the goal. The purpose of invading Iraq was not to spread democracy. Now, as you know, once the United States invades a country, it invariably decides that the best way to leave that country is to leave it a democracy. That was the case in Germany and Japan. It was the case in you know Central American countries where we were more or less sometimes usually less successful in accomplishing that goal. But the question is, if if you want to say that American foreign policy, anyone's American foreign policy, certainly my foreign policy, was aimed at spreading democracy by force, that's just a myth. Okay, that's a that's a myth that's been created by people who didn't who you know want to oppose these things for one reason or another, which is fine. There's perfectly good reason to oppose the war in Iraq. But that is that's that's not what that was about. Now, the fact is, however, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that the world has just become, you know, incredibly authoritarian. Uh, you know, Russia and China have been authoritarian all along, but it's driven by this sort of single rule by one individual. And I do think, by the way, to some extent, that is an indication of how the order has weakened over in recent decades. And I don't deny that the order had the liberal order had weakened. And so countries which used to at least feel that they needed, even dictatorships needed to put up the pretense of having elections to you know, legitimize their rule, I think in recent years, at least they felt less and less the need to do so because the democratic idea has been you know, in, in retreat, by the way, just the way the democratic idea was in retreat in the 1920s and 30s uh, as well. But I don't think that what we have witnessed is the triumph of authoritarianism. And I would say it's even harder to say that today, where it seems to me if any country in the world, if any regime in the world is in peril right now, it's more likely to be Moscow's than any democratic countries. Part of your case for liberal interventionism is that there are global responsibilities which only America can bear. Would it not just be more honest to say? It's got global interests that it needs to pursue. You'd have to explain to me exactly why the United States has more interest in stopping China's expansion or Russia's expansion, for that matter, than any of the dozens of countries that lie around their borders. It seems to me that the United States has less interest and that American policy is not driven exclusively by what Americans perceive as their interests, except insofar as Americans perceive their interests as defending the democratic world order, which, by the way, most Americans would not say uh, was their goal, even though I think it ought to be their goal. Okay, it, it is simply the case that Americans at a certain point, I would say probably in the World War II and aftermath, decided that they didn't want to live in a world that was dominated by authoritarians in Europe uh, and Asia. But the, but the anti-interventionists who argued that America would not have been threatened, uh, even if uh, Hitler had won in Germany and Japan had won in Asia, I don't think we can know for sure that they were wrong about that. So you have to be careful about saying that these are American interests, because in many cases, what Americans have done is in a way they've incorporated the interests of their allies as their own. But if you just look at, you know, if you're sitting in Iowa today, what do you care what happens in Ukraine? 
But as we move now well into the 2020s, and the 20th century becomes a bit of a, a memory, does America, do Americans, do they still have the stomach to be a global player on a major scale in Europe and East Asia? Well, it's a good question. I don't think I can say with any certainty that I know what the answer is. They have in the past played simultaneously large roles in both Asia and Europe. They're, they certainly are capable of doing it. I think one of the things that we've discovered in this crisis is how sort of healthy and vibrant those relationships really are. You know, I think the most extraordinary part of this whole thing, of course, was the financial response and the ability to get countries in Asia, which are not at all threatened by what's going on in Ukraine, to take part in these sanctions because they want to make sure that when the same thing happens to them, the whole world, you know, the Europeans will then support them and the United States will support them. And so to me, that's a sign of real health on the part of the overall structure of the system, which makes it easier for Americans. Put that, that's why I wanted to make that point. It makes it easier for Americans to sustain such a role when they feel that the allies are also heavily engaged. And is it going to help in American politics if Germany fulfills uh, the, the recent commitments to increase their defense budget? Yes, it will. It'll be an argument. Those who want to say these alliances are important. And so I do think it's quite possible that they will sustain it. But the problem is, of course, we don't know what events are going to happen. We don't know what, the, what disasters will befall us. We don't know, for instance, and I know this is of interest to you, what the political situation in the United States is going to be in, after 2024, Indeed. for instance. <laughs> and, I, and I want to come on to that in a minute for our final part. But the reason I ask if America still has the stomach, because you will know better than me that the demands of Europe, where the Russian bear is still active, and Asia, where you have this enormous rising power in China, they require very different military capabilities. One is land-based, boots on the ground, armor. The other is amphibious and air. That's a big military bill that America would have to pay to do both. Well, I think that it, it, it ought to have been doing both all along in any case. And, uh, you know, as it happens, if the United States has favored anything in, this, in the past 10 years, it has favored preparing for a China contingency, not a Russia contingency. And, and the good news, I think, on the Russia side of it is, well, look, I mean, we were able to surge, you know, tens of thousands of troops. The troop buildup uh, in Eastern Europe right now is pretty substantial. And again, we may have the luxury afforded us of having seen that the Russian military does not have the kind of formidable capabilities that we may have thought. The problem is going to be in Asia, because even without anything happening in Europe, we're engaged in a very difficult arms race. The Chinese only have to deny access. We have to acquire access. There are, there are asymmetries that favor the Chinese. And yes, China is a rich uh, country capable of affording a lot of military capability. But I don't think we were already on that track. And the American people, by the way, the, the, what's been I wouldn't say amusing, but certainly interesting to watch is that the American people were geared up to worry about China. The Republican Party was completely geared up to focus on China as the one issue. 
So now they've been forced to deal with Europe as well. But I don't think that means that any of the sort of concerns about China uh, have diminished. President Biden has uh, said that Ukraine, it could be an inflection point in this century's battle between autocracy and democracy. I mean, is it the beginning? Can we see it as the beginning of a democratic pushback? It's very risky to make these kinds of predictions in the middle of a, of a conflict without knowing how the conflict is going to end. And then you, you'll have me on a week later telling me that I was wrong about my prediction. And so, you know, of course, it's a never ending topic for talk shows. But, That's but what we any- do. That's what we do. <laughs> and, thank, and thank God for it, too, let me say. But, um, but look, I do think if we can put the if where it belongs, if, in fact, Putin sustains what I think will be, you know, clearly a loss in this, in this effort. Yes, that, that is a blow because one of the things that one heard not only coming out of Moscow, but even in the West and certainly in the United States was a creeping concern, by the way, similar to the 1920s and 30s, that maybe democracy isn't really all it's cracked up to be, that maybe it's not an efficient form of government and certainly not a tough enough form of government, and that these dictatorships can move fast, you know, they can stick with the moves that they make, et cetera, They can make the trains run on time. They can make the trains run on time. Thank you, Benito. So, (laughs) you know, and therefore, now maybe you might say, well, gee, maybe that's not quite all it's cracked up to be. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. we're now going to have all the theorizing coming forward about how, in fact, it's better to be a democracy because then you have a collective, more collective decision-making and you don't have one guy who can screw up the whole country, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe you could trust your military more in a democracy, blah, 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 whatever it's going to be. But I don't think it's, I think it's reasonable to say that, that it'll have a larger effect, yes. Let's turn, lastly, to democracy on the home front. Last September, you wrote that America faced the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, which takes us way back to the 1860s. Do you still stand by that? I still am very concerned. And one of the things that, you know, I do foreign policy for a living, not not domestic policy. And so it's been easy for me to, to pivot, if you will, to foreign policy. But the things that I and others were worried about back in last fall are things that we still need to worry about. Um, you know, I still think that Donald Trump is likely to get the Republican nomination, uh, which means that the Republican Party, in a way, will officially endorse not only him, but his argument that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Um, a very large percentage of Republicans believe the 2020 election was fraudulent. People genuinely believe that. And unfortunately, our society, the American society, which was always violent to begin with, uh, has become more violent. They're more prone to violence. People are armed and dangerous out there. And I think that, therefore, we face the real prospect of contested state elections in 2024, which even if Trump doesn't, regardless of what happens after that, that mere fact is a constitutional crisis. Because there is no remedy in the Constitution, really, for contested state votes. (laughs) And so it's going to put us in a very difficult position. But isn't Donald Trump running again in 2024 central to your argument? If he doesn't run, doesn't the threat 
largely, I don't say entirely, but doesn't the threat largely go away? I am, I think, in a minority in thinking that the answer is yes, that you're right, that it does largely go away. Now, I think what other people would say is, look, this movement has already shown that it exists independently of Trump to some extent, because there are cases where Trump himself has had to reverse his position in order to get right with the movement that he supposedly leads, for instance, on vaccinations and most recently on Russia. You know, it was clear that the movement actually was anti-Russian and he had to flip in order to to Mm. get in the right place on that. So that's what people would say. But I actually agree with you that Trump is special, that he is in a way the living avatar of all these resentments, all these hatreds. He is the disruptive force. He is the cat that anybody finds him charismatic. I find hard to believe, but I don't think there's any question that he is charismatic. And that he and that he is capable of leading this group. I think in the absence of Trump, what you would see is the movement would would fracture. I think the only person that I see right now who can hold this whole movement together is Trump. It is not fashionable to say, I think you've written it yourself, that America has never been more divided. But isn't American history replete with deep divisions? I mean, you, you had a whiskey rebellion only a couple of years after you were invented. You had the Civil War, which is still the most brutal war you've ever fought in. You had the civil rights of the 1960s. You had Vietnam. You had the National Guard. I mean, even in sleepy Wilmington, Delaware in 1968, the governor had to deploy the National Guard for 11 months. No, no. By the way, I didn't make the point that it was that word divided, because I, I know perfectly well that we've always been divided. Back in the late 19th century, when people died, they put their political party on their gravestones. You know, they would say in their obituary, Republican, Democrat, and that was a direct outgrowth of the Civil War, obviously. But division, you know, is, is typical. All I want to say is Trump is unique. The turmoil in the United States, the racism, the, uh, the white anxiety, every other cultural aspect of this, that has always existed. What was unusual in this case was this particular man. That's why I think he's so critical. Whether or not he gets the nomination is critical. What, in your view, is the likely impact of Ukraine on U.S. domestic politics? Is there not a chance that it rekindles a respect for democracy and it discredits the Putin lovers and those on the far right and the far left who have a soft spot for authoritarianism? That is definitely my hope. And I think that you can see signs that that may be, in fact, happening. The fact that it really is a very fringe group on both the left and the right that, that, that is against the sort of mainstream response to all of this is encouraging. And it does. One thing I think I'm sure you think, but you didn't mention, is there is also bipartisanship on this issue. Uh, you know, you really do have Republican and Democratic senators on this issue almost exclusively working together. So sometimes these foreign policy crises, uh, I think what you're saying, and, and quite rightly, do have a way of reminding Americans what it is that unites them in the middle of their division. So I don't want to go too far with that. It's hard to predict, but I do think there are encouraging signs of the impact on the American domestic political situation. On that uh, optimistic note, uh, uh, Robert Kagan, I thank you for your time and for your insights. Thank you. 
His latest book, The Ghost of the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, will be published in autumn 2022. Tortoise members and subscribers on Apple Plus can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during this series. You can join our newsroom by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneal 50 That's five zero and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>